Be seated and call to come to order. Call the next case. May it please the court, my name is Nicole Leet and I'm here with my partner Michael Rust representing the appellant Michael Stevens in this case. I have reserved three minutes of my time for rebuttal. This case has fairly simple facts. This arose out of a motor vehicle accident in 2012. A lawsuit was filed for personal injury damages, which included a neck surgery by Dr. James Chappius. Before the suit was filed on September 3rd, 2013, there was a pre-suit demand. On September 23, 2013, the adjuster verbally accepted the demand. On November 5, counsel exchanged emails regarding instructions for drafting a check, inquiring about liens in the form of the release. And then over a week later, Appley's counsel attempted to repudiate the settlement. That's what brings us here today. Appellant has filed three enumerations of error in this case. For ease of oral argument, I've combined the last two because they involve generally the same character. But Appellant submits that the trial occurred in three ways. First, there was a settlement agreement. It should have been upheld by the trial court. And second, important evidence regarding Appley's primary expert witnesses, financial interest, and relationship to the parties in this case was improperly excluded by the trial court. Going to the first issue, which as you can understand is the most substantive because this case should not have gone to trial, there was a valid settlement agreement created when the adjuster telephoned Appley's counsel to unequivocally accept the settlement demand. This is not a case where we are left in the dark about what was said, fortunately with modern technology. We have that call recorded and it was loosely transcribed by myself in our reply brief. There was no condition regarding this acceptance. The offer was to settle for policy limits of $25,000. The adjuster called up and said, I accept, we'll give you our $25,000. The key issue in this case and what Appley argued in the trial court and the trial court ultimately agreed with was that there was some sort of specific method of acceptance. As this court knows, there is a volume of case law on this issue. And the writer of an offer is master of that offer. He can choose what language to include. In this case, the offer did not include any specific language saying, in order to accept, you must do A, B, and C. It just said, here's our offer. And then it provided some terms of performance if the offer was accepted. Georgia contract law says, okay, if you don't specify how I can accept your offer, you can do it one of two ways. You can either verbally accept or you can accept in writing or do some performance if it was specified. In this case, there's a verbal acceptance. It's undisputed. It was undisputed in the trial court and it's fairly undisputed now that the adjuster called and said, I accept. And also, I'm working on the affidavit or something to that effect, right? Yes, Your Honor. Not I have it, not I'm mailing it to you, right? That's correct. And the offer said we need limits, we need the affidavit, we need, we have to have the affidavits, we have to have the release, and you're, you didn't tender all of that, did you? No, Your Honor. 
as the author says, there was a specific time limit given for the settlement check to be received within 30 days. There was also discussion about the affidavits and the limited liability release. However, in the offer, there is no time limit specified for when those needed to be produced. And in fact, the offer contemplates they knew it was going to take a little working, a limited liability release to our satisfaction. That requires further work. Also, the affidavits, well, one is not technically in the insurer's own hands. They have to get it from their insurer. So that also they contemplated would need a little work. All three of these things that were required, however, the settlement check, the affidavits, and the limited liability release were all conditions of performance of the contract. Nowhere in this demand does it say, in order to accept, you must do X, Y, and Z. And that is the key point that we believe the trial court missed in not enforcing this settlement. There is a very good case law recently out of the Supreme Court of Georgia in the Grange Mutual Casualty Company certified question case. There's also a case cited by Appleese in their response, the Benton versus Gailey case. Those cases are clear. But there is this language you can include when you're drafting your offer and should include. It says the following items must be strictly complied with in order to accept. This is the Grange Mutual Casualty Company versus Woodard case, 300 Georgia 848. This triples up. Not only do they say that there in bold, and then they list it again below. And again, it's an essential element of acceptance. In these cases, it was explicit. Under this offer, submission or receipt of the policy limits, execution of the limited release, and affidavits, they were conditions of performance, not acceptance. The contract itself was created, an offer and acceptance. By verbal acceptance, we will pay you the policy limits. Now, Your Honor, I would agree. Performance of this contract does say, within 30 days, we need to receive your settlement check. And arguably, on November 5th, this was received uh, about September 6th, the record reflects. So the 30 days would have been up mid-October, early October. By November 5th, when the next emails were exchanged, no settlement check had been received. That's undisputed. However, with this very first email, Applebee's counsel had some options. Again, under basic contract law, if there's a failure to perform the contract, the person has the right to rescind. But you have to do it timely. You have to do it at your first opportunity. The first opportunity was this November 5th first email from counsel hired by the appellate insurer to facilitate settlement. At this time, they said, we have been retained by the insurance company to facilitate settlement. Put your last slide back up there, though. That she, it says, if the check's not received after said time, it is hereby withdrawn. That's rescission. After said, I mean, I'm going to look in the middle of the top paragraph, after it says 30 days, after this said time, this offer is hereby withdrawn. That, that, that is the language of rescission, right? Your Honor, if it could be interpreted that you could preemptively rescind, preemptively yeah. rescind, I would support is that they waived that rescission by not asserting it when they could on November 5th and elected to proceed with the settlement. That when you proposed an alternate path that you essentially amended the agreement and they, they, they accepted that. It wasn't necessarily an alternate path, Your Honor. I would, I would phrase it as 
they had not performed and they were offering to continue with late performance and that was the breach of performance was waived and then accepted and elected to proceed with okay. by this series of next emails. Because after that first November 5th email, our lease council said, we're negotiating liens now. We'll pay them from this recovery. So in response to an inquiry about how to write the settlement check, at a time when arguably the requirement that the settlement check be there within 30 days had not happened, Appalachian Council waives any right of rescission and proceeds saying, we're working on the liens. These November 5th emails are entirely consistent with what we all do when we finish up a case. They're working on negotiating down the liens, they're getting check instructions, they're talking about a release. Entirely consistent with a settlement has been made and they're proceeding with finalizing the details. As your honors know, the law favors settlement. The law also favors waivers and is very specific in that if a party does not promptly assert a right to rescind for breach of contract, waiver occurs and it cannot be recalled. So the events weeks after these emails, when they attempted to refuse the check and rescind the contract are improper. As the Court of Appeals said in Crawford versus Etheridge, waiver will be found with almost any action that is not immediate repudiation. What, what's your understanding of how long you had when, when, when you, so you so you're working on the 25,000? Could you have held that in, in perpetuity? Your Honor, and claim settlement and failure to immediately object? I don't think a specific time period was created in the waiver. By responding to this... How long is the waiver good? If they didn't respond when they waived it by saying, okay, well, we need it in the next 30 days, I would argue that the waiver is indefinite because this first email... Indefinite? Indefinite until they put a timeline on it? Yes, Your Honor. They have said that they're working on the settlement truck, looking for drafting instructions, and that was accepted. There was no response from the Appalachian Council that said, "We need, remember, we need this within 30 days, time is of the essence. Arguably, there would have to be some other conduct to then have another opportunity for a rescission. I don't know what would occur later on. If Appalachian said, okay, it, it's been too long, I need this now, and then they didn't do it, then they could have another chance to repudiate the contract. But Appalachian Council's conduct in this case, in providing terms on the November 5th emails, discussing liens, waived any right of rescission and was entirely consistent with electing to proceed with the performance of the settlement agreement. Alternatively, if the court decides that these November 5th emails uh, were after the original offer had expired, then these emails support that there still is an enforceable settlement agreement. The November 5th, 2013 correspondence can be construed as a counteroffer. And there is an objective standard to view whether there's a meeting of minds to determine if there's a contract. However, it's a bit of a misnomer. While they call it an objective standard, it's not from a total stranger. It's from the position of one of the parties who has the history of the past conversations and dealings with 
this issue. And looking from the position of the parties in this case, not an objective from a stranger's view, there was a settlement that was being talked about. And the only material change, arguably, was the timing of when that settlement check was going to be received. There was a lot of discussion in the trial court about how it was so vague, you couldn't understand how much money was left or anything like that. It's not vague. They talk about this settlement, referring to the $25,000, which was the only amount ever discussed in liquidated damages. I'm going to reserve the rest of my time for a while. All right, thank you. You have two minutes and 54 seconds. Jeff Yashinsky on behalf of the appellate Yolanda Castano, uh, and I would like to spend the majority of my time on uh, some of the other issues that have been raised in this appeal, but I would like to address a couple of the matters that were raised by uh, Appellant's attorney. Just to clarify the record, I believe our brief addressed all of these issues sufficiently, but I'd like to just point out that first, the Grange versus Woodard case, which I believe actually supports our position because it on the past law before OCGA 9-1167.1 was enacted, uh, it, it confirms that a condition of acceptance was certainly the law before 9-1167, and the ruling confirmed that it's still available to a plaintiff to make payment a condition of acceptance even after the statute was passed, but the statute didn't go into effect until 2013. This accident happened in 2012. So 9-11-67.1 didn't apply to our demand and it was, didn't go into effect until three months later. Our demand still met all of the requirements that were necessary at the time. And I would say that there's nothing more clear to this point of the case than the statement that in the demand letter that says your check made to only James F. Embriali and Yolanda Castano must physically be delivered to our office within 30 days. I don't know how much clearer it can be, but that was a condition of acceptance. Ms. Castano didn't want a promise to pay. Ms. Castano wanted them to pay, and they had a duty to pay, and they failed to respond in time. And the phone conversation they had with an associate at the office did not accept that offer because they still had to get the check to us in time. They never asked for an extension never provided the affidavits showing that there was no additional coverage, which is a, a very important factor for Ms. Castano to resolve this case. And once it expired, that offer was gone. It disappeared. And the interesting thing is, counsel for the appellant at the, in the lower court acknowledged that the original offer expired on its own terms, both in the hearing and in their brief. And it wasn't until this appeal was filed that argument came to light. But I think the case law is very clear. You can't accept it once it's expired. The offeror is in control of the offer. Mr. Imbriali never made any attempt to reignite the conversation or, or re-offer settlement. Instead, he answered some general questions that were emailed to him by an attorney who was hired by the insurance company, uh, apparently trying to fix the situation. Um, and I'll address all of those issues in more detail uh, if I have time. 
And I would just also like to point out that, that Mr. Imbriali submitted an affidavit in response to their motion to enforce settlement, in which he specifically stated in paragraph 7 that after she, the attorney started emailing him, he reached out to the client to talk about the complex issues that were now before us, and she authorized him to go ahead and file suit. He immediately told them that he was filing suit, and I drafted the complaint, I drafted the discovery, and we mailed it to the court on November 22nd. We mailed it because we weren't in a rush. There was no settlement agreement. He had already told them we were no longer willing to accept a tender of policy limits. He never told them that he would accept it after the offer expired. And they never made an attempt to clarify that in their emails that that was their intent, that this was, we are paying you, we, are, we have a settlement agreement, and asked us if we agreed. They can't do that as the, the party who just let the time limit expire. They can't reignite our offer. It can only be done by the offeror, and that was never done. And Judge Darden got that, that issue right in the lower court, and we would ask that you affirm that decision. You, you think the failure to deliver the check in the 30 days um, is an absolute rejection of the initial offer? In other words, you, you, you don't accept the notion that there's a waiver. There's an, there was a, a waiver when the 30 days expired. You're saying when the 30 days expired, that, that was evidence that there was, no, there was never an acceptance because, yes. because the terms of acceptance required the check. Exactly. Okay. And Grange versus Woodard basically confirms that, and that's under the statute, which is much more, uh, it has a lot more requirements than what we had at the time because the statute hadn't gone into effect yet. So the fact that that Grange case affirms that a plaintiff can demand payment within a certain time as a condition for acceptance, not performance, condition of acceptance. And if they fail to do that, even if it's a, a clerical mistake, they have blown the time limit demand. And they had every opportunity to get this done. It doesn't take long to get a check delivered to an attorney's office. It doesn't take any time to draft a limited liability release and to argue that that's what caused them any kind of delay. I don't find uh, to have any merit. And I would also add that um, after Mr. Ambriali told them that he, his client was no longer willing to accept the policy limits, they still didn't send the check. They didn't send the check until, I think, November 27th. Well, that shows me that they probably hadn't even asked for the check because they knew that there was no official settlement agreement yet. And all of the questions, these general questions in this, these two November 5th emails to our office uh, made no mention of the, uh, you know, the, the timing of the payment, when it was going to be received, the amount of the payment, and at that point it's conceivable that they were going to have to pay more than their policy limits. But what if they wanted to pay less? Does that mean that they now can enforce a settlement because there's still an agreement even though they aren't paying what the demand set forth? I think the case law is clear that the demand expired, these emails did not create a new contract or a new settlement agreement, and Mr. Mrs. Castano was free to file suit, which is what she did, which is exactly what her letter laid out for them and told them she was going to do. Shifting gears on you, explain to me how a doctor's at least arguable financial interest in the outcome of the litigation shouldn't be something that the, the finder of fact should know about 
when they're weighing the credibility of their testimony? Thank you, Your Honor, and it's a very good question. And I, I think it, it boils down to two things. One, under the collateral source rule, any benefit towards payment of damages is not to be introduced in front of the jury because it has an inherent effect of, of being misused. Did you raise collateral source in the 403 argument in the trial court? Well, Your Honor, I'll, I can't say with certainty that that was specifically set forth. What happened in the lower court is that we were arguing motions in limine about the attorney referral, mm -hmm. and then that came up uh, coincidentally that they were going to introduce this evidence, and the judge ruled that it wouldn't come in because it wasn't relevant. So I would argue that we did uh, make the, the point under the... Point I guess what I'm saying is if, if we accept the collateral source 403 line of argument, don't we need to vacate? In other words, we, we, we only review what the, the court below considered. At best case scenario would, would be vacate, under your argument there would be a, would be a vacation, allow them the opportunity to hear this argument for the first time. I don't, I don't see anywhere where that argument was put to the trial court. The collateral source argument? Yes. Well, I think in Judge Darden's order, it seems to imply that that was the basis for why he was determining it wasn't relevant. However, without using magic language, that's the that's the you just say that, that's the, the the way we were pursuing it. Yes, Your Honor. I think it was it was kind of a, a surprise that it was coming up and hearing in the and I'll say this during the the deposition, I objected to the questions along those lines. And again, I don't think I specifically cited collateral source, but our, our intent was to argue the objections to the judge before trial. And we never got to that point because... Would the, collateral, would the collateral source rule apply if it was only evidence of the lien and not how much, and not, 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 not a, you know, just the presence of a lien and not what the medical bills were or anything like that? Would, would that still trigger it? No, I don't. Well, yes, I don't think that, that would come in regardless. And I'll, I'd like to make one point before I forget on mm. this issue, just so that the court is clear. The testimony of their own expert did not challenge that Ms. Castano needed surgery and did not criticize Dr. Chappies for performing surgery. He acknowledged that she needed surgery. His only question was that it wasn't caused by the collision. And Dr. Chappie's testimony, the only thing that they would try to contend with was improper is that he, he made the statement or testified that he believed it was more likely than not that the collision was a cause of her symptoms. Doesn't that, I mean, counsel, doesn't that make their point? If, if Dr. Chappie's did a procedure that was medically necessary and the other expert believed it was all medically necessary, but also testified that it was because of an accident, and I and and I have a lien with respect to the litigation and the accident. It doesn't that. I mean, I, I, I'm not saying you're making their argument, but doesn't that make the point that, 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 that the finder of fact? Nobody was telling the finder of fact that there wasn't an injury that needed repair. They were saying it didn't come from this, and one expert said it did, and one expert said it didn't, and the expert that said it did. Their, their ability to be paid was at least impacted by the litigation that the finder of fact was involved in, right? I, I think I misunderstood that last part, their ability to pay. So, so the Dr. Chappius, 
had a lien, therefore Dr. Chappies had not yet been paid. This was a potential source of getting paid. Correct. And the only way Dr. Chappius got paid from the lien is if the jury agreed that this came from the accident. Well, not necessarily because her, Ms. Castano getting a favorable verdict doesn't necessarily mean he's going to get paid because if you go back to the beginning, Mr. Stevens didn't have a, a large insurance policy. So it's going to depend on whether he can recover from his insurance company or sign his right to go against them for bad faith before anything ever gets paid. So Dr. Chappies doesn't stand to even receive payment if she gets a verdict. But I would agree that yes. Dr. Chappies, Dr. Chappies wouldn't, I mean, that, that would be the argument they would make to the jury, right? Is that Dr. Chappies wouldn't have a lien if Dr. Chappies didn't think this was a way to get paid or partially paid. Well, no, Your Honor, I would disagree with that because by law, every doctor that performs treatment on somebody who was injured in an accident as a result of another person has a lien by law. So in that context, anybody who has an outstanding balance, whether it's a dollar or whether it's a million dollars, they have a financial interest. And I think that goes to the prejudice versus the probative hmm. scale. And I think that that's important because while I would agree that the collateral source is, is evidentiary bar according to Georgia law and that any payment benefit has got to be excluded for fear that it would be misused and there's a long line of cases that agrees with that. I would say that it's even more compelling that the prejudicial effect severely outweighs any probative value and there may not be a probative value and quickly your honor I'll, I'll explain basically every doctor has a lien for treatment they provide as a result of a collision. Ms. Castano remains responsible for these medical bills regardless of what happens. Dr. Chaffee's answer to the question of whether he had an interest because there was $150,000 in outstanding debt, he said, I treat every patient the same whether they have insurance or not. And that's in the record. That's his response, which wouldn't come into the jury because he mentions the word insurance. I would also add that his opinion about causation was based on his meeting with the client, examining the client, examining her, her diagnostics, and performing services, and taking her down her history. All of that, their expert, who says she needed surgery, says it wasn't as a result of the collision, but he never met her, he never laid eyes on her, never examined her, and he's being paid by an insurance company, but the jury's never going to find that, But that, you're, you're talking about credibility and weighing the evidence now. I mean, in terms of which evidence, which expert do we listen to? Well, and, and, and I would say, I would add that their expert didn't have any basis to say that there was a herniation that was caused between the 11 month gap in treatment that she had to go because she couldn't afford to go to a doctor and she had to go see someone who would treat her on a lien or provide some type of funding. It was the only way she was going to get treated. And their doctor admits that she needed surgery. They have nothing to point to to say that a herniation was caused during that time, other than the fact she's a waitress, which is what his testimony was. And he even agrees with Dr. Chappies that she needed the, the procedure to be done. So there's no evidence to support his opinion, whereas Dr. Chappies is completely supported by Dr. Wells, the first orthopedic surgeon that does not do neck surgeries, that saw Ms. Castano, read the MRI film, was able to see that there was clearly a herniation, and told her that she was going to need a lot of additional treatment. Unfortunately, because she couldn't afford it, she had to stop, and that's when she went 11 months without uh, getting any additional treatment. So I think that the issue is, there's no probative value to the information that they are trying to introduce. Thank you very much. 
Ms. Lee, I think you've got three minutes. Your Honors, the jury was hamstrung in this case, and they were not able to do what their task was, which is to weigh the credibility of the witnesses and the evidence and determine who to believe, what their bias was, because the trial court improperly excluded this evidence. A witness's financial information and interest into the outcome of the trial is always a proper subject for cross-examination, and evidence of bias is always relevant. That's well established in Georgia law. To address the collateral source argument, by definition, a lien is not a collateral source. It's not evidence of a payment by someone else in an attempt to reduce the liability. And that's not what this was being offered for. Dr. Chappius's letter of protection lien agreement had a couple of key interesting points, including he was getting paid the full rate of his services, what's called the retail rate, no discounted agreed to rate plan. He also had in his letter that he got paid first priority, no matter what. This also bears on the course of treatment in this case, which is the other enumeration of error relating to the evidence that the plaintiff in the underlying case was referred to Dr. Chappius by her attorney. As Appley's counsel just mentioned, there was a gap in treatment in this case. Normally, you go to an emergency room, then she went to the orthopedist, and the orthopedist may refer her out. Instead, there was a gap in treatment, and her attorney, 11 months later, referred her to Dr. Chappius. That, combined with the evidence of his financial interest in the case, should have gone to a jury who was listening to him testify as the expert and the person giving the causation for damages, including his expensive surgery in this case. Also, to briefly address a point raised by Appley's counsel regarding the prior settlement issue, he asked what else they could have done to make it more clear that the check was required to accept. Well, case law supports you need to put it in your offer, which you drafted, a condition of acceptance, an essential element of acceptance is. This is not new. It doesn't have any relevance to the statute cited by Appley's counsel. This is contract law. In fact, I'll report for it to the case of Malir versus Kennedy, which is 290 Georgia Act 432, a 2008 case. In that case, the court specifically noted that the presentation of a proper release in a form acceptable to the plaintiff may have been a condition of defendant's performance, but was not an act necessary to accept plaintiff's offer to settle based on the terms of the settlement agreement itself. Therefore, we respectfully request that this court reverse the trial court's decision and enforce the settlement, or in the alternative, reverse the decision and remand back for consideration. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, Mr. Clark, you got any other thing to come for the court? Sheriff, you got anything for today? Court will be at recess. Thank y'all.